Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and what is the 10th annual Great Issues in Medicine and Global Health Symposium. 10 years, it's been great. Thank you so much to everyone who's been working on this. We're delighted today to have uh, Thomas Poga here from Yale University and he'll be introduced in a moment uh, by Lisa Adams. There are no conflicts of interest to declare associated with this presentation. And I'm going to just very briefly tell you about Lisa, who, as you know, is Geisel's Associate Dean for Global Health. She's an Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine in the section of uh, Infectious Disease and International Health. She also guides and directs the Global Health Initiative at the John Sloan Dickey Center for International Relations at Dartmouth College and has been um, magnificently involved in global health issues for her career and her research. So Lisa, thank you for doing the introductions. Please tell us about Thomas. Thank you, Rich, and good morning, everyone. And actually, I too just wanted to take a moment before I introduce today's speaker to acknowledge uh, that this is the culminating event in this year's symposium, Great Issues in Global Health and Medicine an annual event that's been directed by Dr. John Butterly um, and Mary Turco. And as was mentioned, this is the 10-year anniversary of this event, and here you see displayed the last 10 years' worth of posters. Over the last several years, uh, the symposium theme has been linked to one of the eight millennium development goals, and this year's theme is linked to actually the... That wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> This year's um, theme is linked to the eighth and final Millennium Development Goal, Building Global Partnerships, which leads me to introduce today's speaker. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Thomas Poge, a prominent thinker and voice in the international discourse of global health and social justice. Dr. Poge received his undergraduate degree from Hamburg University and his PhD in philosophy from Harvard and has taught philosophy, political science, and ethics at universities around the world. He's currently the Leitner Professor of Philosophy and International Affairs and Director of the Global Justice Program at Yale University. He's also a professor at King's College London and at the University of Sydney in Australia and Director of the Center for Study of Mind and Nature at the University of Oslo. Professor Pogge is a pro prolific writer and lecturer. He's written extensively on moral and political philosophy, including books on global justice and extreme poverty. His book, World Poverty and Human Rights, is regarded as one of the most comprehensive works on global justice. Among his many academic distinctions, Dr. Pogge has been a visiting fellow or scholar at the University of Maryland, the Princeton University Center for Human Values, Allsos College at Oxford University, and the Department of Clinical Bioethics at the National Institutes of Health. He's also a member of the Norwegian Academy of Science. He's led graduate seminars at schools throughout Europe and in Brazil, Taiwan, and China. He's delivered more than 1,000 lectures in 42 countries, and I think he said this is number 1,041. <laughs> in 2011, he delivered a TED Talk at TEDx Canberra in Canberra, Australia, on medicine for the 99%. <clears throat> Professor Poge currently heads a team effort working towards development of a complement to the pharmaceutical patent regime 
that would improve access to advanced medicines for the poor worldwide and develop better indices of poverty and gender equity. He's promoting the Health Impact Fund, which is devoted to advancing market-based solutions to global health challenges. It proposes a new way of paying for pharmaceutical innovations by incentivizing the development and delivery of new medicines through pay-for-performance mechanisms. We will be hearing more about this during his talk today, and I'm sure you'll agree that his innovative thinking in this area is both practical and inspiring. We're pleased that Dr. Poge could join us this morning as the final speaker in the Great Issues in Global Health and Medicine Symposium to discuss the Health Impact Fund, making life-saving medicines available for substantial reduction in the global burden of disease. Please join me in wel welcoming Professor Poge. this on? Does it work, the microphone? This one's on, yeah, okay. But I had this wonderful movable one, so I thought I wanted to try that. All right, so human progress, you can say, has two components, two interlinked components. On the one hand, innovation, and on the other hand, diffusion. So you want to innovate, you want to discover something new, and you want to make sure that it reaches people that it is actually taken up. As in so far as either one of those components is missing, there's really no progress. An innovation that doesn't spread is really not benefiting humanity. And where there is no innovation, of course, there's no benefit at all. Now, the way in which we have incentivized progress, incentivized innovation, leads to a dilemma. We know that we can increase the speed and quality of innovations if we reward innovation in reliable ways, so if we incentivize it through temporary monopolies, for example, such as patents and copyrights. But exactly these same temporary monopolies are incentivizing innovation at the expense of diffusion because they raise the price and thereby prevent access by those people who are unwilling or unable to pay the price of getting access to the innovation. Now, nowhere is this more important than in the area of medicines. At present, our system for providing medicines to people is governed by the TRIPS agreement which came into force on the 1st of January in 1995, and which basically prescribes a one-size-fits-all patent regime for all WTO member states. What they prescribe is product patents of minimally 20 years duration, in contrast to process patents, for example, of shorter duration that were common in the developing world before TRIPS became effective. So India, the most important country for the production of medicines, had a process patent regime before 1995, actually all the way until 2004, because it took 10 years for India to come under TRIPS, a process patent regime of seven-year durations. Process patents patent a particular way of making a medicine, and people can invent around the uh, process by simply de developing a different way of making the same molecule. So Indian generic companies were very clever at inventing around process patents and finding new ways of making the same medicine, then selling them very cheaply to customers, patients in India and the rest of the developing world. 
That opportunity closed on the 1st of January 2005, where the Indian implementing legislation took effect. And since that time, uh, pharmaceuticals are protected in India as they are in the United States with these 20-year product patents. Now, this system of rewarding innovation has three pretty obvious drawbacks. The first one is that access is gravely undermined insofar as poor people cannot afford to buy patented medicines if these medicines are very much marked up. And it's interesting here to look at why there are so large markups. If you think about somebody who has a temporary monopoly, that person will choose the price in such a way as to maximize the profit. If you pick a price that is too high for your product, you will not sell many copies because very, very few people only can afford it. If you lower your price too far, you will have more customers, but you will not make a lot of profit per unit that you sell. And so to find the optimal price, you have to play with this curve here. You have to estimate the demand curve and then find that place on the vertical axis, which is such that you maximize the size of the rectangle going to the right to the demand curve and then vertically down to the cost curve and back to the left to the y-axis. So you can see that in a world as ours is where you have very high inequalities, the profit maximizing price is actually very, very high. So you sell at a price that gets you maybe 15% of the world's patients as customers and you neglect the other 85% because lowering your price so as to make the medicine accessible also to some of them is losing you more in the size of the markup than it gains you in the horizontal dimension in the number of customers that you get. So this is true, by the way, increasingly also within developing countries. So even if you can price discriminate, even if you can sell your product at different prices in different countries, which is difficult because of parallel import problems, even then, the profit-maximizing price in a country typically excludes the majority of the population in that country. So that was the first problem. The second problem is that this present system also does poorly in terms of targeting. So there are diseases that are predominantly affecting poor populations, and these diseases are not lucrative targets of research and development at present. Because if you do develop an effective medicine for a disease like that, you face a Hobson's choice. You either have uh, the usual very high markup, in which case the people who need the medicine are unable to buy it, or you sell it at a price that your patients can afford, in which case you will not get as much of a markup as you would with, for example, a hair loss product. The third problem is that the present system also does poorly in terms of its cost effectiveness. You can estimate that roughly by taking all the money that the world is spending on medicines, which is about $900 billion annually, and then looking at how much of that money goes back into research and development on the one hand and manufacture of drugs on the other hand. It's about a five to one ratio. So where does all the rest of the money go? It uh, doesn't all go into the pockets of the greedy pharmaceutical companies as profits, 
but a lot of it goes for wasteful activities such as, for example, competitive advertising, the cost of patenting, even higher the cost of patent litigation, and so forth. So the system has a lot of friction in it, a lot of waste, and that's in a sense good news because it makes it easier to find enough political forces that are interested in reforming the system. The system can be reformed in a way that reduces waste and thereby uh, maybe avoids costs to any affected party. So here's the reform idea that I've been pushing with a group of people for a number of years. It's called the Health Impact Fund. And the basic idea is not to change anything about TRIPS, but to undermine TRIPS, if you like, to complement it by an additional mechanism, a second track on which pharmaceutical innovators can be rewarded. So what the Health Impact Fund would offer is the opportunity, no compulsion, for pharmaceutical innovators voluntarily to register particular products for participation in 10 consecutive annual reward pools that would be divided among registered products according to the health impact that each of these products achieves. So each product would be assessed annually with regard to how much health gain it makes possible for the people who are using that product and on the basis of how much each product achieves in terms of health gain, the reward pool is divided each year. A product that is once registered stays on the pool for a period of 10 years and then drops off. So we estimate if you have $6 billion in these annual reward pools each year, you will get roughly 25 products with two to three products coming on each year and two or three products dropping off each year. The pools would be funded in the first instance by governments, though in the long run we'll think about some sort of an endowment that would make these payment flows predictable. Uh, and you would start with somewhere around $6 billion, but it would always be possible for governments to increase the amount and thereby to attract additional products to the Health Impact Fund to register. $6 billion is not a lot of money relative to the world's product, which is about $70 billion at this point. $70 trillion, I'm sorry. So $70,000 billion. And it's not even much relative to the markets for pharmaceutical, which are currently around $900 billion, the total money that the world spends on medicines. Registrants would keep their intellectual property rights if they register, but of course they would not be allowed to also avail themselves of the other way of profiting from a new medicine, namely the markup opportunity. So they would have to give up their power to mark up the product and sell it at the lowest feasible cost of manufacture and distribution. At the end of the reward period, they would also be required to give free licenses to generic firms to manufacture the product. So after 10 years of rewards, uh, the reward period ends and the product becomes generic. Now, how do we determine what the lowest feasible average cost of manufacture and distribution is? A preferred method of doing that would involve a competitive bidding process, a kind of auction or tender, where competing manufacturers would bid for the contract to manufacture the product. The two 
lowest bids would be accepted and the innovator would then buy the product at the tendered price from these manufacturers and sell it on to wholesalers at that same price, making no profit whatsoever from either the sale or the manufacturer of the product, making all the profit from the health impact rewards that they would get from the health impact fund. <coughs> this is a list of advisory board members for the health impact fund project. You can see that some rather smart people have uh, endorsed the, the project and are working with us on uh, working out the details, which of course are the, the difficult part of this. And let's go through quickly the three problems and see how the Health Impact Fund addresses them. The Health Impact Fund addresses the problem of high prices, obviously, by making the medicines that are registered with the Health Impact Fund available at cost from day one. So poor people get access to important new medicines, often even below the cost of manufacture, namely in those cases where the innovator reckons that by selling below my cost, uh, I am losing a bit of money on the sale, but I make more money on the additional health impact reward payment that I get by reaching additional patients than I lose by selling below my cost. Second, the health impact fund would end the neglect of the diseases of poverty. Many of these diseases would now become lucrative areas of pharmaceutical research because even though you don't have customers with a lot of buying power, you do have customers whose health you can promote quite substantially, and that is what the Health Impact Fund rewards you for. And here it's also worth mentioning that research outfits in the developing world would actually be at an advantage relative to the established brand name innovators, or let's say at less of a disadvantage, <coughs> Because if you think about such a fledgling company trying to break into the market for cancer drugs, it would be very, very difficult for them to do because the big brand name innovators have already pumped so many billions of dollars into research on such diseases. But with regard to the neglected diseases of poverty, very little research has so far been done. And so fledgling companies in the developing world would be at least competitive. Thirdly, the Health Impact Fund would also boost cost-effectiveness because many of the wasteful expenditures associated with the present system would be absent here. So it would reduce uh, costs due to patenting. You wouldn't need to patent in a lot of countries because uh, nobody would really want to compete with you at the very low prices at which you would be selling. Uh, there would be much less litigation about patents because, again, much less would be at stake financially. There would be much less competitive advertising uh, because, again, the enormous amounts of money that you can make by increasing your market share would not exist on the Health Impact Fund track. We would also get rid of the incentives to counterfeit medicine, which, again, derive from the fact that the real product is sold at such high prices. Uh, gaming and lobbying would be much reduced. And finally, we would get rid of about $200 billion worth of deadweight losses which is the economist's term for all the social value that gets lost by a big gap between the price of a product and the cost of its manufacture, where mutually advantageous sales between a willing buyer and seller
cannot come about because the seller cannot undersell itself, so to speak, cannot offer the product at a lower price without losing the lucrative sales that it is making at the profit-maximizing price of uh, the product that is determined by that curve that I showed you earlier. Now, there's an additional bonus for the health impact fund. That is that it also alleviates last mile problems, both in the developed countries and in the developing countries. So the health impact fund would incentivize pharmaceutical companies to think very intelligently about any problems that might occur between their product and its developing its optimal health impact. So normally, under the present system, a pharmaceutical company makes its money as soon as the sale is consummated. You sell something, it crosses the counter, you get your money. What happens afterwards doesn't matter. But under the health impact fund system, what comes afterwards, of course, is crucially important. It matters that the medicine actually achieves a health impact. And so pharmaceutical companies will have an incentive to look after the efficacy of their product, uh, the targeting of those patients who can benefit the most, because you get paid more money for, for patients who really benefit than for those who don't. The affordability, you have to sell sometimes below the price ceiling, as I already mentioned. You have to look after proper prescribing and try to promote compliance and adherence in order to make sure that everybody who takes your product really benefits fully. And this is also important for people in the, developing, in the developed countries because we too benefit when pharmaceutical companies take an interest in our health rather than only an interest in selling us products. Uh, I conclude with a few quick words about uh, financing and uh, piloting the Health Impact Fund. The financing could initially work in this way that governments, willing governments who want to support the Health Impact Fund would contribute something like 0.03% of their gross national income to it, the various ways of doing it. Uh, but one could also fund it through a dedicated international tax. And in the long run, I would prefer an option of an endowment that would cushion against fluctuations, possible fluctuations in the incoming payments. Piloting the HIF, uh, we have fortunately now made an agreement with Johnson & Johnson to pilot the Health Impact Fund in India with the new drug Seturo or Bedaquiline, which is already approved by the FDA but has not yet got approval in India. So we want to roll out the medicine in Mumbai and want to observe that rollout by carefully measuring the health impact. So we are already beginning with a baseline study to see what the current treatment is that people receive in Mumbai with multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. And we want to then see how much better patients are doing once uh, bedaquiline comes becomes available to them. <clears throat> so the main point here is just to measure the health impact and, of course, also to preserve the drug's efficacy, which in the case of bedaquiline will be quite important. It's the first really new medicine against tuberculosis in a long time. We have funding from the European Union to do this baseline study and also then to observe the rollout of the medicine. 
The benefits of the pilot are that we develop an integrated metric and measurement methodology for applying the Health Impact Fund in the future to establish defined procedures for its reliable application, to promote integrative and regional systems in healthcare, to serve the patients in the pilot area, obviously, and also uh, this is not something that this particular pilot can do, but that we plan for future pilots, to observe how innovators respond to the novel incentive of being paid for health gains. In this pilot, that's irrelevant because Johnson & Johnson is giving us the product for free and also giving us the part of the time of six people who will work with us on introducing the pilot. So the Health Impact Fund is designed to benefit really all parties. That goes back to the thing I said about the wastefulness of the present system that the system is so wasteful that we can afford to reform it in a way that really benefits everyone. It benefits innovators who have moral and reputational gains, which by golly they surely need. They have new markets, uh, their pipelines are drying up, so it would actually give them new research and development opportunities. Patients benefit because we have a broader arsenal of medicines available, they're made more affordable. There is a stronger focus on health gains and uh, there is a focus also on population effects, including in particular the poor. And finally, governments and taxpayers benefit. They pay for the Health Impact Fund, of course, but they also benefit by getting lower drug prices. Every country that contributes to the Health Impact Fund gets the benefit of these lower prices. And by relying more on medicines and less on hospitalizations and later stages of care, of course, great amounts of money can be saved on the one hand in medical costs and also in missed work days, premature deaths, and so on. Last point, I started you off with talk about human progress and its two components, innovation and diffusion. And I just want to say that this idea, which I think would work in pharmaceuticals, can also be applied in other areas. So two obvious areas are green technologies, where again, the diffusion of new green technologies is hampered by the fact that anybody who wants to use them has to pay a licensing fee to the innovator. And oftentimes, of course, people will say, especially in developing countries, it's just too expensive for us. We will not use this green technology. We'll rather build something on an old blueprint that we inherited from the Soviet Union or something like that, even though it is ecologically much less clean. And uh, that is something that is highly unintelligent, I think, to reward innovation by allowing innovators to mark up the price. Because in this domain, we all breathe the air. We all suffer the consequences of the pollution that occurs or could have been prevented if only we had allowed people to use that technology for free. Similarly, with agricultural innovation, there are various techniques that reduce the need for fertilizers and pesticides and increase the nutrient yield per acre of planted crop. And these techniques, again, are patented by companies such as Monsanto, and anybody who wants to use them has to pay a fee to Monsanto. Again, this is highly unintelligent. We should give these technologies away for free and find a different way of rewarding the innovator. The third area that I'm not mentioning here but also I'm working on is education. We could make education, uh, build an educational platform 
where education would be available for free to the end user through the internet, and those content providers that are admitted onto the platform would be rewarded on the basis of provable uh, competence acquired by the users of these educational materials. Thank you. There was one thing you misunderstood, uh, probably through a fault of mine. That is, uh, everybody who registers their product, every registration is accepted. So uh, the 10 was the 10 years that you get rewarded. So anybody who wants to register a product can register that product, and the product then sits on the fund for a period of 10 years. Now, let's talk about the uh, how lucrative it is to register, right? One thing is very clear, that you will not make the kind of profit that you make with the blockbuster drugs, the uh, best, most lucrative ones. So Lipitor made in its heyday 13 billion a year. The Health Impact Fund has 6 billion a year, so you're not going to get the Lipitor-style profits out of this. But pharmaceutical companies, of course, do not just do drugs that are as profitable as Lipitor. They do any drug that is profitable, right? They want to make a profit. Uh, Mercedes is producing the big sedans where they make huge money and then they also produce the smart car where they make much less profit but it's still profitable so they do it. Now how does it work? Uh, the Health Impact Fund has a fixed amount of money that gets divided among innovators and so you're right that how much you get will depend on how much health gain the other products that are registered will achieve. Now, all these other companies that have products that they might potentially register will, of course, look at one another to see, is this really lucrative? How many other people are on this fund? And what is the reward rate, let's say, in dollars per quality adjusted life year? What's the rate at the moment on the Health Impact Fund? And how much money can I expect to earn? Now, when that looks dim, when it doesn't look like there's a lot of money to be made on the Health Impact Fund, then that will deter potential registrants, and because of that, the reward rate will recover. Again, dollars per quality adjusted life year, something like that. And conversely, if a lot of people hesitate and they say, ah, this is too 
risky and this is not something I want to do, this is not enough money for me, then the reward rate on the health impact fund will actually go up and the fund will become more attractive. So by design, this is a self-adjusting reward rate which will always attract innovators because if it at some point deters innovators, they will stay away and the reward rate will then rise to the level, whatever is required, to attract innovators. We think, as I said, that we will get 25 drugs or so at any given time, but it could be, I could be completely off. It could be 15 drugs or 30 drugs or something. I really don't know. It all depends on how much it really costs uh, pharmaceutical companies to innovate. As you know, there's a big debate about that. And we just let the market decide. We make sure that the reward will always be sufficient to attract people and it will never be so high as to create large windfall profits for pharmaceutical companies. You said at the end there, I think a really crucial statement, you said we will make sure that the reward is always big enough. And that seems like a really key point because just being profitable is not good enough. It has to be sufficiently profitable. It's exactly that market mechanism, right? That you say, okay, so let's say this is not sufficiently profitable now. The reward rate is below the level where most pharmaceutical companies find it sufficiently profitable. What happens? These companies stay away. They say, you're not going to get my product. I'm not going to register my product. What happens next? Well, pharmaceuticals that are on the health impact fund will drop off. They come to the end of the period, and each time a product drops off, the reward rate will go up. Right. The total is six billion a year. So if you are the only one registering with your drug, you get sixty billion dollars, and that's a lot of money. So for sixty billion dollars, you know somebody's going to come register. So the number of products is not going to fall below one. So then the question is, how many products are we going to get, right? And that's exactly where the system is self-adjusting. So your worry is completely legitimate, but the way I handle it is not that, that I, as an expert, so to speak, I think about how much money do these guys need, but rather I let them decide themselves. They are competing, right? So the only way my system could fail is if uh, these people all collude. That could happen, right? So all the pharmaceutical companies in the world, they say, okay, only the Pfizer guy is going to put their one product on, and they're going to cash in on the whole amount, and then they're going to pay us off secretly under the table. But uh, first of all, that's not realistic. And secondly, of course, we can put a ceiling on. We can say that the reward per quality adjusted life year can never rise above blah, blah level, right? So we can, uh, we can prevent that. But it's really a market mechanism. It's actually worth thinking about because it's a pretty intelligent mechanism. It's not my, I should say. Uh, it was a guy called Abramowitz, a lawyer actually in Washington, D.C., who came up with this idea. And I think it's a very intelligent mechanism that uses the price mechanism and competition among innovators to set the price. And it's something that, I mean, you've heard about many other schemes, right? Advanced market commitments and price funds and all that stuff. And they all suffer from the problem that they don't know how big to make the reward. With the advanced market commitment on for pneumococcal vaccine, uh, they put out $1.5 billion as a reward payment. And many experts have said they vastly, vastly overpaid. 
this was a boondoggle for the pharma industry. And again, I'm not the expert. I don't, I'm not willing to judge whether that's true or not. I suspect it is true. But I'm just saying the health impact fund doesn't have that problem. It will pay enough by construction, and it won't pay a windfall profit also by construction. So I'm curious about your thoughts uh, with respect to diffusion. Um, there are huge issues in terms of inefficiencies of diffusion of innovative uh, medical treatments with respect to adoption by the medical community, even after evidence has proven efficacy. On one hand, and yet on the other hand, perhaps inappropriate use uh, by being able to say, purchase directly over the counter and solve these issues completely, but I think it moves us in the right direction on those issues. So one big factor in inappropriate use is that pharmaceutical companies and their representatives have a vested interest in promoting some inappropriate uses, right? If you have a product that you make a 50-fold profit on, where you basically sell it at 50 times your cost of production, you have a pretty strong interest in selling more units rather than fewer units. And so you tell your sales representatives, uh, you know, why don't you whisper into the ears of doctors and patients that this helps for all sorts of other things, you know, even if you don't exactly have what it says on the label that you ought to have in order to take this product, take it anyway, it can't hurt, it's going to be good for you, and so on. And we're all familiar with these sorts of cases, and that's exactly what the Health Impact Fund does not incentivize. Our present system incentivizes it, but with the Health Impact Fund, if you sell somebody a product that doesn't achieve any health gain for that person, you have just made zero money. There's no reward for that. So that's a, a positive there. Then uh, with regard to compliance and adherence, uh, something similar works in that if people don't comply, don't adhere with the treatment, that is under the present system, no skin of your nose, right? You sold somebody something at a high price, and then that person uh, puts the, you know, takes a few pills and then throws the rest down the toilet, or it gives a few pills to the grandmother or to the family dog. It doesn't matter because you have made your sale, you've made your money. But with the Health Impact Fund, not so. If the person doesn't adhere to the treatment, doesn't take the full course of medicine, falls ill again, you have made no money. So again, uh, this will not make everybody adhere, of course, but it will shift the incentives of pharmaceutical companies. For example, they have more of an incentive now to translate the package insert into the local languages so that people who take a product can actually read what it says on that on that slip of paper that is included in the package, things like that. And these things are important in promoting adherence and compliance, even though they can't achieve it perfectly. Okay, I'm going to go around the room and that order of 
So um, I don't have an intimate uh, understanding of the pharmaceutical industry by any means. But my sense is, let, let's take the example of parasitic diseases. They have, they have uh, uh, preclinical um, targeted groups that are involved in um, product development from, from, from the uh, laboratory. And they don't even have product groups that are interested in parasitic diseases because they know from, from experience that they're just not prevalent in developed countries and they are prevalent in developing countries and they'll never make a profit on it. So, that, so the drug pipeline from the get-go is non-existent in diseases that essentially are the target of what your pro project is, is uh, designed for. Yeah, so that's exactly right, and that's exactly what we want to change, right? So if you say, uh, here is a second way in which you can be rewarded, there are two tracks that you can choose between, and on this new second track, you can be rewarded for health impact, suddenly, the eyes of a profit-maximizing chief executive of a pharma company light up, and that person will say, wow, there is money now, suddenly, in parasitic diseases. I can make money by developing a new product against a parasitic disease because I can now register it on the health impact fund track and be paid according to the health impact that my product achieves. I don't have to sell it at a very high markup in order to make money, which of course, as you say, would be impossible. I'm not sure they'll view it that way. <laughs> I think they're more likely to view, hey, I have nine, I have 10 products, one of them is uh, potentially related to parasitic diseases, nine emerged developed toward developed countries. I'm going to go with the nine because I don't have a, an unlimited resource. Yeah, uh, two things on that. I mean, one thing is, uh, in a sense, they do have unlimited resources, at least in the sense that they can expand their research and development operation, right? So this is the example of Mercedes that I gave earlier. Mercedes of course, will never ever sacrifice a single sedan for making smart cars. But if they can produce all the sedans and sell them profitably, and then in addition make some money on smart cars, well, they expand their facilities, they build a new factory, and they do that in addition. The second point is, uh, speaking again with a lot of people in the pharma industry, you're completely right, there's some pharma companies that look at this health impact fund thing and they smile at me with this sort of pity in their face and they say, yeah, you know, chicken shit, peanuts, you know, Pfizer and Abbott, for example. They say, this is, yeah, fine, you know, we are just going to ignore this. It's not worth my while to even read this proposal because there's just not enough, baby. Six billion dollars, forget about it. Not interested. That's fine because there are others in this field, right? There are fledgling companies that I mentioned in the developing world. There are also uh, public-private partnerships, for example. So think of DNDI, Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative. How do they operate? Well, they go around collecting money from good people like you and me. And if they have enough money together, they develop a drug or two. Then they don't want to make money on the drug. They don't want to sell it at high prices. So they sell it cheaply, which means at the end of the day, they have no money and they have a nice success that they sold. So now they go head in hand again to good people like you and me and say, give us some more money. We want to develop yet another drug. Now with the Health Impact Fund, that second phase would become much, much easier because now they could register their product, do exactly what they want to do anyway, namely sell it at low prices, and then 
get money out of the Health Impact Fund rewards for doing their second big research project. Hi, um, I have a question about, um, firstly, I'm smiling at you. I'm from Zimbabwe and uh, I yeah, think this I'm is Yeah, I'm smiling great. back. Uh, <laughs> um, I just had a question about um, the approval process of the drugs. Uh, with Suturo, the approval was fast-tracked. Um, so do you have a, a, a system of controlling that process of approval to make sure that once the drugs are out, and using a specific population, um, they are safe enough, at least. Yeah, so it was fast track, that is right. And uh, basically, the Health Impact Fund does not really interfere with the domestic approval processes. So the Health Impact Fund is not in a position to approve any drug. We rely on governments to do that, as before. And so we have to wait, like in the India case now, we have to wait until the Indian government decides on the basis of its own criteria whether it wants to uh, allow the drug to be used in India or not. So that's simply something where we piggyback on the existing system. It's not something that we change. Uh, there is obviously a significant danger. It would be very difficult uh, to cope with the situation where a drug that was registered on the Health Impact Fund then turns out to have nasty side effects. And that would be bad not only for the company marketing the drug, but it would be bad for the Health Impact Fund and its reputation. So what we would do, obviously, is since we are in the business of measuring health gains anyway, since we have teams of experts running around the universe exploring how the health impact, how the drug was doing, we will have much better information about Health Impact Fund registered medicines and much more unbiased information about it than would normally be available under the existing system where companies, right, I'm just saying one word, Vioxx. Uh, and so I think it would, again, that problem is not solved by the Health Impact Fund, but I think it, the Health Impact Fund would move things in the right direction with regard to the drugs that are Health Impact Fund registered. Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, we are still not. I mean, the glad you liked the paper, but uh, it's still this is still not the complete answer because we are still working on this, and uh, the paradox is apparent under the present system as well, right? So the world urgently needs new antibiotics, uh, but the problem is that the only way in which innovators can be rewarded under the present system makes it very unlikely that anybody will spend a lot of time developing new antibiotics because these new antibiotics have to be kept in reserve. They have to be used very, very rarely. And if they get used very, very rarely, you're not making any money off them. And so under the present system, this is really a, a dead end. It's a, a very bad situation. So what the health impact fund system could do is its basic idea is you pay for the social value of an innovation and through the tax system. And that social value could be defined in different ways. I've defined it for purposes of this discussion in terms of health gains. 
immediately observable, measurable in terms of quality-adjusted life years over the first 10 years of the product, counting here the uh, time at which the medicine is taken as decisive. So if a medicine increases your life expectancy from five minutes to 50 years, then the entire 50 years counts as health impact, even though that sticks out beyond the 10 years of the reward period. But now what you're saying is that sometimes the beauty of the drug, the drug is very, very important, even though only six people take it. And it will be more important in the future. At some point, it will come into wider use, perhaps. But for the moment, the fact that we have it is incredibly valuable. And that is something that we don't yet know how, but that we can work into the reward formula. We can reward companies for developing something whose social value we appreciate, even though it doesn't consist in immediate health gains. Today I will fly to Australia to be interviewed for a very, very major grant. And if the grant comes through, we will do as our second pilot a scabies pilot in the Northern Territory. So there is a so-called crusted scabies, uh, people who are extremely you know, infested and they are the source of many of the new infections and so on. So it is something that we work on and will take seriously. We work with an NGO called One Disease at a Time in the Northern Territory to do this. Now, uh, the question that you raise is basically a question about, so exactly how do we define health impact? And our first answer to that is to say, we want to basically go with what has been become accepted in the medical profession. And that's a quali-dali methodology of the sort that the people at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle uh, are using. And so I think it would be very poorly received if I, as a philosopher, came along and said, look, you know, nice try, you medical folks, but uh, let me tell you how one really measures health. <laughs> uh, wouldn't, wouldn't go over well. So uh, here in this regard, I want to be bland. I want to be boring and just take over what the medical profession has come up with. And of course, that is itself contested. So there are people who talk about age waiting and time discounting and God knows what else, and complications about, you know, another uh, thing that I've heard a lot is that mental diseases are underrated in terms of their severity. So that's really a much greater burden uh, than people give it credit for. Now, uh, I'm in no position, just as a philosopher, to tell you what's right and what's wrong in that area. What I can tell you is that for the Health Impact Fund to work, we have to agree on this. And so if governments uh, were willing, if this got to the stage where several governments are really interested in this, and this may happen very quickly, actually, 
then uh, these governments, uh, together with the researchers working on the Health Impact Fund, have to convene a conference of people and just discuss it and work through these issues and come up with one specification of either Quali or Dali that everybody feels is close enough to be acceptable for those who fund the Health Impact Fund. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this talk. I think it's a great concept. I hope it will work. And I guess the experiment will help. It, it occurred to me, you mentioned Vioxx, uh, you mentioned Johnson & Johnson, you mentioned that drug companies care about their reputation. There may be something else going on that may work in their favor for getting companies to sign up. For example, it turned out in this country that Merck knew for several years that Vioxx was causing strokes and heart attacks even before they pulled it off the market and their reputation suffered a huge blow. Um, they had to settle that for $5 billion. And yesterday it was announced that Dupuis, which is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, is proposing a slightly smaller $4.5 billion settlement because they knew in advance that their hit processes were protected. And they want to regain a good public reputation. So it may be to their advantage to put some products into this that shows that they really care about world health. And I wonder if you factor that type of defensive reputation into a motivation why companies might contribute in this parallel stream. Absolutely, yes. I mean, that's certainly right. And that may affect the prevailing uh, price that we have to pay for registrations, right? It may lower the price because some companies will have a disposition to register even if the profits aren't quite right. So if they feel, you know, how much money would this product make on track A, on track B, a little bit more on A, but let's go with B anyway because that stands us in good stead. So this is absolutely part of their calculation. It's also interestingly part of their calculation now when they have to decide, do we support this health impact fund, do we ignore it, or do we just say it's a terrible idea? And uh, companies divide along, the, you know, some companies are very hostile, some companies try to ignore it, and then other companies are very, very friendly, like J&J. And so I think that the fact that J&J is friendly is not unrelated to their prudential interests. So uh, there are people, I should say, in pretty much all the companies that I've talked with who are absolutely moral people, who are very, very excited about this. And they say, I went into this business of pharmaceuticals because I want to do something good for humanity. But those people don't get anywhere unless they can persuade the bean counters that there's something in it for the company, that this is good for the shareholders in some way even with a bit of acrobatics and creative accounting, but you have to tell a story how this is good for the shareholders as well. And so the story that, for example, in the case of Johnson & Johnson, right, uh, there was on the one hand, there are these settlements. You mentioned the hip replacements. There was another uh, little scandal that recently broke with $2 billion as well. So that's one thing. The other thing is that Johnson & Johnson is a bit atypical because they sell other things besides medicines, for example, baby oil. And those are products that are quite relevant to the developing world. And so being nice and being perceived to be nice is something that actually helps sell, helps and sell other products, right? A company like Novartis famously said, India now has 50 million customers. 
saying, in other words, that the other 1.15 billion don't exist. They're basically as if they didn't exist. They're irrelevant to us. But Johnson & Johnson, with the product uh, products that they have on the market, cannot afford to say that. They, For them, India has more like 600 or 700 million customers, namely all those who might buy some of the other products. So I think this is very, very important to keep in mind. And one big reason why I put so much of my life into this Health Impact Fund project is precisely because I think it is promising, because it's not just a, moral, uh, a morally compelling project, but one that actually, because of the waste of the present system and because of the other prudential motivations that one can harness, has a real chance of success. Before we finish, uh, and I know there may be some other questions, and I certainly encourage you to come up here and speak with Thomas as we end, but I just wanted to call your attention to these books that have been listed here. Um, three on the left, the three most leftmost are from local Dartmouth authors. The book called Hunger, the Biology and Politics of Starvation is by John Butterley and Jack Shepard. The book called Africa, A Practical Guide for Global Health Workers was edited by Laurel Spielberg and Lisa Adams. And Building Partnerships in the Americas uh, was edited by Margot Krasnov. The fourth book, of course, is called World Poverty and Human Rights by Thomas Poget. We call your attention to these for further reading. If you're interested in this area, uh, I, I think you'll find these um, very enlightening. And lastly, we want to um, have a brief thank you to the Grimshaw Gadeowitz Charitable Foundation for helping to underwrite the global, uh, the Great Issues in Medicine and Global Health Symposia, the Amos Tuck School of Business, uh, Geisel School of Medicine, and of course Dartmouth Hitchcock, many components of which have helped to underwrite the symposium. So Thomas, thank you for giving us an innovative thought process today, and we do hope to disseminate this throughout ourselves and, and the world. Thank you very much for being here.